Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, my guest in this episode uh, has come to us from the Great Southern, uh, where she does many things, including running uh, a sizable property, uh, a farm, along with her two kids uh, and her beloved Kelpie, Jack. She's also a prolific author, uh, telling stories of life uh, on the land, uh, through her many, many novels. I've got her latest copy in my hand right here. She has sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Her first book, uh, Red Dust, was the highest-selling debut novel in 2009. She's also written a couple of very successful kids' book uh, books as well. And if that uh, is not enough on her plate, uh, she's also been a uh, vocal campaigner uh, for a number of charities, but especially a campaigner to support victims of domestic violence. She is up in Perth at the moment. She's kindly come in uh, to share with us her inspiring story. So, Flew McDonald, hello and welcome. Hello, Tim. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I'm holding your latest uh, book in my hand here. It's called Deception Creek. Um, tell me, what is writing to you? Is it, is it, is it an outlet? Is it, is it all about the creativity or is it just, are you just a born storyteller? Can I burst your bubble and say it's about the money? <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Um, <laughs> no, look, I love I, your honesty. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. <laughs> I, I think you have to be a, a, a born storyteller to be able to, to write. So yeah. I come from a long line of storytellers. Yeah. My nana used to stand in front of, uh, she had an old smoker's bow chair, antique chair, that um, was in this terrible green colour and she would pop us grandkids down there and stand in front of the fire and hoist her skirt up to warm her bum and then tell us all these stories about... That's a vivid image. It is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all these stories about Spindles and his pet goanna that would they would um, trot along the, the Todd River out of Alice Springs and, um, you know, all the mischief and adventures that they would get up to. Yeah. And then that got passed on to my dad and dad uh, is an incredible storyteller mm. uh, and that's sort of then come down... When you say incredible story storyteller, he'd just sit you down and, and, and tell you stories, made up stories, true stories, bit uh, of both. Dad is a never let the truth get in the way of a good story type <laughs> yeah. storyteller. Yeah. <laughs> just gets a bit bigger and yeah, better, slightly more embellished every, every, every time. time. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. what he does. And, you know, like my, so that got passed on to, to me, but my cousins are storytellers too. I've got a cousin, um, Tanya, who's a published author and my two uh, male cousins, oh, and Melissa does too, they just write songs, they write mm. music. So, you know, they tell stories in a different way. So yeah, yeah we are a reasonably creative family. Uh, Esperance is your home, yep. has been for some time, but you grew up in, in South Australia yep. on a town, I must say, until I started doing a little bit of research on you, Flair, I had not heard of it. I want to hear you say the name. Oruru? Well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't... Oruru question mark? <laughs> <laughs> you don't uh, try and say it after a couple of wines. No. Um, what goes on in Oruru? 
given that I've never heard of it, <laughs> what's it like? Um, well, when I grew up, I haven't lived there. For, I'll put a disclaimer. I haven't lived there for quite some time. But when yep. I grew up, not very much. Um, you know, we the footy every Saturday. Yep. A, a really normal country town. Yeah, sport was a really big thing. Uh, I spent a lot of time riding down to the swimming pool during summer. A really hot town. So it's at the base yep. of the Flinders Ranges. It's okay. not unusual to have 40 degrees for many days at a time. And opposite in winter, our pipes would freeze in the mornings and I sometimes remember getting up and there would be no water coming out of the taps because mm. it was so cold. Um, Jack Frost across the lawn and you'd walk across and you'd have your footprints behind you and yeah so it was a very um, very small sleepy town but you know we had a lot of um, a lot of traffic going through because it's on the main highway that goes from um, Port Augusta through to Sydney. Right. So a lot of um, a lot of trucks through and yeah just a very small sleepy town with um, lots of really lovely people in it. And and so were you a farming family? No, oh, yeah. um, dad had, mum and dad had a fuel distributor business. So our business has been going for over a hundred years now. And um, dad, uh, dad got it really up and going and the fuel cartage sort of covered about a quarter of Australia. Mm. And I spent a lot of time with dad in the truck um, as a kid because he was still driving then. Um, yeah, it was great, great upbringing. That, that great expanse of the Australian, I don't want to say outback, but, you know, country Australia, um, that obviously got into your your blood and your bones uh, yeah. from a pretty early age. Were you ever intrigued by, you know, the big cities not too far away? No. From, no? They never <laughs> sure held answer. any great appeal to you? No, it's funny. So my grandparents had a station and I spent a huge amount of time up there. So I always yeah. knew I wanted to be a farmer just because I didn't live on a farm didn't mean that I didn't want a farmer mm. or, or I wasn't exposed to it. But my cousin, she was completely different, grew up in a cattle station just out of the Northern Territory. And she dreamed of, you know, these, um, these massive cities with the castles and the princesses and, you know, uh, that sort of thing. I never had any of that. Mm. Just, just really happy that we're in the bush. Yep. The fresh air. Yep. Wide open fields, the snakes. (laughs) We'll get to the snakes in a moment. You mentioned, um, you know, your your grandmother and your dad as well, um, great storytellers. Um, Do you remember as a kid just having a great imagination as well? Because I imagine you have to amuse yourself a lot of the time growing up in that sort of environment. Yeah. Um, Do you remember having a vivid imagination and coming up with your own tales as a kid? Always. Uh, Always. Uh, I I used to plagiarise Ina Blyton very well. Um, (laughs) She was – and I would spend a lot of time up on – we had a great big willow tree in the backyard and I would be right up the top of that reading, you know, The Faraway Tree or The Famous Five or something like that. And I used to be really scared. I can remember this very clearly, scared at night. Um, I had to race in while the ha- uh, while my bedroom was still dark and shut the curtains because I would be convinced someone would be looking in from the outside. Uh, and that was just always pure imagination. My mum jokes now when they say, oh, you must be very proud of Fleur. Uh, she says that it's a very good thing I found something to do with my overactive <laughs> imagination. <laughs> you almost sound like a character that you'd come across in one of those stories. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? You almost sound like this, I don't want to say a cliche character, but you sound like a character in one of these books. Oh, I'm just mad, that's all. You know, that's what that is. <laughs> I suppose that helps. I mean, was the town big enough? Did you have... 
your own library in the town? Could you yeah. go and just ransack that and read everything yep. voraciously out of there? I remember. So we had, yes, we did. We, so we had an area school. Um, yeah. And I don't know that I've ever come across an area school over here in WA. I don't know if they have them, but it's where you, you, you do, it's just a primary and a high school together. I don't know why they called them area schools. Um, but they had a massive big library on that that, you know, was also for the, um, for the public. Mm. And I still remember my library card number when I was in year <laughs> one when I got it, 150V. Um, and yeah, and I was really annoyed on that. I went to kindy the first day I went to kindy and I came home and I stormed across to Nana's and I said, they haven't taught me to read. So you're still going to have to read to me. <laughs> so I've always had that affinity with words and stories and, and you know, that type yeah. of thing. Never really thought that I would write books. Just, yeah. you know, when you, when you when I'm reading Ina Blyton, um, you know, the author's dead. You, it's not a great career choice. I never gave any <laughs> thought to the author behind the yeah. book. So, yeah. And when did you start? I mean, obviously you learned to, to read at a fairly youngish age then, probably soon after that moment you shared. Um, <laughs> when did you then start to write and start to come up with your own stuff? Yeah. Well, like I said, plagiarising Enid, uh, Enid Blyton's stories would have been done from the minute I could hold a pen. Yeah. Uh, and um, in high school, I sort of um, graduated onto lovesick teenage poetry, which I seem to be quite apt at. Uh, <laughs> Even still now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can be. Um, and yeah, and I don't know, I just always, I always wrote. One of the things I used to do, which weren't stories, but I guess they were stories in a way where I, I would write, you know, six or seven pages home to Nana and Papa in letters. Because of course, when I went to school, yeah. it, it was letter writing, you know, mm. it wasn't fine. Oh, there were phones, but they weren't used anywhere near as much as what yeah. they are now. So the good old landline. Yeah, that's right. Or the pay phone where you'd pick it up and you'd dial the phone number and you'd get this little click and you'd say, ring back. And then your mum would ring you back. Yeah. That was the things that you had. We need to go to a break in a moment. After that, I'll want to get into uh, your, your move across the border into WA. But I'm curious to know, I mean, you write so many books, you know, that are based on, I suppose, your experiences in the bush. Being in a smallish town like Esperance, people must come to you just going, oh, is that about me? Are you writing about me? Well, I mean, you know, the inspiration for your characters, they must get a little bit paranoid every time you release a book, do they? Yeah, um, they, uh, they can. And uh, I just know that I've done my job really well, if that's the case, because they're never about anybody. Right. <laughs> I could tell you a funny story when you've got time, when, okay. when it fits in. Yeah, all right. Let's take a break. Save that one. Keep that one up your sleeve. This is Inspiring Stories. Uh, our guest in this episode is Fleur MacDonald, uh, prolific and successful West Australian author. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. My guest in this episode is WA author Fleur McDonald. Um, Fleur, tell us about uh, your move over the border into Western Australia. How old were you? Why did you do it? Your initial thoughts when you arrived? Um, so, 2000, oh, no, 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 it wasn't, it was a lot earlier than that. It must have been um, 1993, I came yep. over. And I came over because WA was a lot more progressive in letting women work on farms. That right. was why I initially came over. Okay. Um, South Australia were still at that point advertising 
for only jackaroos. Yeah. Um, wouldn't hire any any women to work on farms because they didn't have the right living quarters, which I always thought was a so bit of a... So you were a pioneering jillaroo. Uh, I don't know. That. There were certainly women around, but that South Australia was um, a lot um, harder to get into the industry. Yeah. It was a lot harder. So you, you just flat out couldn't even get a, a job? No. I, this, I, I applied for... I had one job in South Australia that lasted eight months, and that was a. I was very lucky with that. Um, Tim, who was my, um, who was my boss, said, you know, it's so hard to to find to to want to bring women in because there's always that um, indication that women are going to cause trouble. You know, like we're young and you know straight out of school, and the guys, the jackaroos, are young. You know, I got viewed very suspiciously by lots of people. You know, farmers' wives and. Um, and, you know, labelled an acre chaser when all I really wanted an to do... An acre chaser. I've yeah. never heard that phrase before. Oh, the, I can't remember what they call it in hectares now. Hectares <laughs> something or other. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, it, so just, you know, someone looking to, to marry into a big farming family. Is that right? So you were just seen as a disruptor. Yeah. Potential and, trouble. And it wasn't just me. It was my, it was my gender that was seen yeah. as that. Yeah. And that uh, was very frustrating because all I wanted to do was learn. I knew that I loved working mm. with animals and mm-hmm. I loved the land, I loved the space and I just wanted to learn. And there wasn't any, um, there wasn't a lot of women that were around to act as mentors in in that time, during that time either. So uh, I got a job over here and uh, I, um, Dad and I drove across the Nullarbor with my trusty dog Rena at that point and, and I went and worked for a guy called um, David White, 100 kilometres west of Esperance and yeah, right. um, had... I think there was 4,000 acres out there. I'd never seen, uh, coming from, you know, the Flinders Ranges where it's red and it's purple and it's stony and, and there's not a lot of grass around. I've come to Clover, you know, that's 30 centimetres high and puddles that are up around your ankles. It was yeah. just a completely different world. Yeah. And what did you think, apart from being very green? Yeah. well, what, I, what and I place? And I was green too. Yeah. Um, it just... I loved it. Yeah, I really, really fell in love with it. I loved the, um, I loved the smells. I loved the cattle work. I, yeah, I just loved it. Yeah, with with a view to to what? Just being a, I suppose a professional farmer for one of a better. Yeah, I always wanted to buy my own land. So when yeah. I was in year eleven, no, year ten, I actually wrote to my grandfather who um, had the station out of Oruru, and asked to go back and work on it. And that, mm-hmm. so I knew from very early on that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Mum and Dad were horrified when they found out and Papa had actually written back and said yes because they said, no, you've got to finish year 12. Mm. Um, and anyway, so I finished year 12. But um, yes, I always wanted to own my own land and whatever you had to do. Yep. You know, the the, um, the sexual harassment and bullying that you get, you, that um, still probably is in, in the industry um, now, I was, certainly was prolific back then, but none of that was ever enough to stop me from wanting to be involved. You know, it's just... Um, that's, a, that's a strong will there then. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, you know, yeah. I just think that um, I knew what I wanted and yep. I knew how I had to go about to get it and, you know, the rest of it didn't really matter. You just flick that off. If you don't mind me asking, what happened to the, the idea of, of potentially taking over your grandfather's property? Oh, well, I guess I can't, I stayed in WA. Yeah. You know, I, I met my now ex-husband and we got married and, and farmed over here. Yeah. So I guess that was all... 
that happened with that. And, you know, it's funny now, having not grown up on that land, growing up in, in the town but not growing up in that land, it's a very, very different land to farm. And I think I would find it difficult to farm without water. Farming with water is really, really easy. Um, farming like they do in station country is a completely different uh, kettle of fish and yeah, a bet. lot a lot harder. Yeah. Um, as I understand, when you first really put your roots down here in Western Australia, down near Esperance, you lived a fairly primitive sort of life uh, yeah. in the early days. No power. No, no toilet. No toilet. No, little I mean, that sounds like bush camping to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I used to go to so this little Atco hut. So it's a demountable hut um, and it was very open to the elements. It used to have moss growing in the windows and great big holes in the walls that I'd stuff with steel wool to stop the mice from coming in and uh, it had... I don't know if anyone can re remembers these, but these stoves, instead of being an upright stove, it was a split one. So you had the oven on one side and then the gas cooktop on the other. And I'd just light the, uh, the stove and pull the door down so it heated everything. That was the heater. And I used to sleep in tracky pants and um, skivvies and beanie. Uh, most during the winter, you just the the rain and the wind just used to lash the sides. Camping the then, house. yeah, well, you're not getting <laughs> wet <kinda>. though. <laughs> you're not getting wet. <laughs> you don't like the easy life, do you, Fleur? Oh, that was all about um, getting to that dream of yeah. farming in your own right. Yeah. It didn't really matter what you did to get there. Yeah. Well, again, clarifying that, you know, you it, mm. to do the hard yards. It doesn't matter to do the hard yards because nothing that you want ever comes easily. No. Doesn't sound like it. <laughs> and then you have a, your first child come along and you're still facing these challenges with a little one yep. uh, in your arms as well. I mean, you know, people complain about it being in the city if, you know, if it takes more than five minutes to order a coffee in the morning. Yeah. You know, well, I suppose you just get used to the, the, the challenges in your own life. But, uh, you know, being in that situation and, and having a an infant yep. to look after as well. That must have been intense. The thing about um, farmers' wives in general, not just me, but any farmer's wife, is you live a long way from anywhere and um, there's nobody else to do it for you. So yep. you just get on and do it. It doesn't yep. matter. Um, and, yes, I turned that little Atco hut into a therapy room for Rochelle um, with her dyspraxia and um, we just went from there. Yeah. And as I understand, you, know, you had uh, some extra challenges with both of your kids. Your daughter uh, had dyspraxia. Uh, your boy is autistic. Yep. Um, again, it's tough enough in the city when you've got all these services uh, fairly close by uh, to access. What was that like for you being, you know, on a fairly primitive farm a mm. long way from anywhere? Um, those years are very foggy for me. I yep. remember um, they were a mixture of screaming and projectile vomiting and um, <laughs> thanks to my son and yeah, a lack of sleep because neither of them slept through the night. And it was, um, it was a pretty, uh, I don't know if, I don't know that I knew that it was tough, if that makes sense, because you're you living, just it, it. you just do it and you don't know that nobody else is, or anybody else is going through that. They might, they might well be, you, you never know. So I don't know that I saw it as tough. Um, and there wasn't any other option anyway, you mm. know, there was no other house around, there was nothing else. So, yeah. um, that was that. And the kids were who they were and are. So you just get on and, and do it. I used to take them with me. So if we were crutching lambs to send off on the truck or whatever, um, sometimes, you know, we were doing that late at night because we'd just been run out of time during the day and the kids would sleep in the wool at night. Um, Hayden used to come with me when I was raking the hay on sleep on the tractor floor. 
um, before they went to school. So, but you know, most other farm kids have done that too. There was nothing special about that. Yeah. Mm. Um, it was during those early years, wasn't it, that you found yourself, you know, awake at night trying to get these kids of yours through another night. <laughs> um, again, that vivid imagination of yours, that very active imagination, um, you sat down and decided to actually put pen to paper. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I thought that was a good idea at the time. I really don't. Um, but yeah, I just had this story sitting there that somehow had to come out and I spent a lot of time playing with paragraphs and sentences in my head before I wrote them down. And I, I, I don't know, it was, it was the f most fun time I'd had in a really long time, you know, mucking around with those, those first few chapters. And it was after I'd read, um, Rachel Treasure's Dillaroo book that I suddenly thought, well, you know, I could write something to do with the rural lit genre because, you know, I'm living this life and mm. I know what it sounds like when you stick a drench gun in a sheep's mouth. Or And I've got lots of funny stories. You know, my sister has told me stories for her when she was, you know, nine months pregnant. She was driving the grain truck and um, it broke down and the mechanic sent her underneath the truck to fix it because her tummy at nine months pregnant was smaller than his, you know. So there's lots of funny stories and characters around that you can just harness and pull in and bring into, um, bring into these stories to make them real. They're authentic, you know, yeah. that, that you won't get any romantic um, notion about country <laughs> life with me <laughs> and my stories. Uh, when did life get easier for you down there? I mean, presumably after a while you got access to power, regular yep. power and, you know, toilets that flush and, yeah. and all the rest of it. But was life still pretty pretty tough, pretty challenging on the property? Yeah, it was. Um, we had we built this beautiful house and um, the kids were off at school and you would think that things were a little bit easier. I think that that was probably when I worked out that um, life wasn't as nice as what I would, would have liked it in my relationship side of things. So that was, um, and that was tricky because, you know, kids were small and, and I, all I knew was that I was unhappy. I didn't know anything else. It was just that I was unhappy. Yeah. Yep. Mm. What about the challenges of, of, of farm life as well? I mean, you've got the animals on the property, yeah. you've, got, you've got crops, you've got all of the other, um, you know, challenges that nature throws at you yeah. uh, from time to time, fires, floods. Yeah. And drought. Snakes, so, yep. you name snakes. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> drought. And 2008 was a really, really horrible year. And um, yeah, it didn't rain until August. And that's a really, really late break for, for us down in Esperance. And, um, and it, it, there's a fear that hangs in the background that if one of us cracks, then, you know, what's actually going to happen. So, you know, there's all of that. Um, but we weren't the only ones going through it either. Yeah. It was, it's, it was, you know, across the board. Yeah. Um, but I think also, again, you know, that's, we are at the whim. We choose a, we choose a industry to be involved in that is at the whim of the weather. Mm. And uh, there's no, there's no way of changing that. Just before we go to a, another break. Please tell me you haven't had any close encounters with uh, our legless lizard friends over the years. I can tell you very, very <laughs> I can tell you many, many stories. Tim, just let me know when you'd like me to tell them to you. <laughs> well, let's get them out of the way now. Oh well, the... look, I'm just just going to put it like snakes are my least favourite animal on the yeah. planet. 
Like spiders don't bother me at all, but there's something about snakes that just freak the hell out of me. Yeah, so snakes don't bother me anywhere near as much as frogs do. <laughs> um, so uh, the first, I think the first one I'll tell you about is is the one that I had in the house when in the hut, and Rochelle was nine months old. I was pregnant with Hayden, and I could Rochelle was in a rocker up on the kitchen table, and I heard this swish of a um, tail, and I turned around and I saw the tail going behind the filing cabinet because uh, I was sitting at the computer. And my father-in-law had always told me that I would get put in a situation where I had to kill a snake at some point. And I used to laugh and say, no, 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 I will just take everything that I love, dogs, animals, you know, anything inside, and we'll stay there until it passes. And um, it's really tricky to do that when it's actually in your house. So um, I did what every good respecting farmer's wife would do and rang my mum two and a half thousand kilometres away. (laughs) (laughs) And she goes, well, what would you like me to do about this, darling? Yeah, good point. So, yeah, I did. It took me four hours to find the bloody thing again, and I tracked it down underneath Rochelle's cot and killed it down there. And I know that I'll probably get into trouble for killing it. But, you know, if you relocate a snake, you're probably going to relate it to my property or someone's property. It's a long way to to drive it to somewhere Somewhere else. else. (laughs) Yeah, that's not going to come back. And I'll also point out tiger snakes are actually territorial, so they'd find their way home anyway. Yeah. So they don't yeah. stay around. So tiger snakes, dugites, yeah, browns. Oh, yeah, there's death adders down there, but I've never seen one of them. Oh, good. Mm. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's enough now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Let's go to a break. After that, I'm really intrigued to know how you craft these characters uh, and get away with it in a small community. Get <laughs> like away with it. <laughs> this is Inspiring Stories. Flair McDonald is our special guest. Back with more right after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Everyone has a story to tell. This one brought to you by Bower and O'Day. My guest has many, many stories to tell and has uh, put them all uh, in a series of books now over uh, several years. Um, can we just go back to the first one, yep. uh, Red Dust? So is this is that got sort of elements of those initial scribblings that you were doing in those late nights? Is that Did they make it into the... They were it. The first book. They, they, they were are, it. They, they were it. I have, uh, I have the most bizarre story when it comes to being published. You know, people talk about overnight success stories and, um, you know, you know automatically that there is 10 or 20 years of really, really hard work behind that, you know, mm. overnight success story. But um, crazily enough, mine was very much overnight. I, I probably spent, I don't know, three or four months writing the first third of Red Dust and then I submitted it into Alan and Unwin's Friday pitch mm. and they rejected me once but, you know, I'm reasonably tenacious and uh, I went back again and that's when it got picked up the second time. And, and was incredibly successful as a debut yeah. novel. Yeah, um, it was. was a great seller. What, what do you think it was that that made it such a good read to people? What, what was it that made it resonate? So a lot in publishing is just about luck uh, and there was a real hunger for um, this rural lit um, genre that I write in. Uh, Rachel Treasure started it, as I mentioned before, and it, her books were uh, huge sellers as well, but there was nothing else on the market. So I was the second one published after Rachel. So I um, had a really opportunity. I, I had readership that were craving for these types mm. of books and so I could reach everybody. That's the reason that that book did so well Yeah, um, because people were hungry for it. Yeah. Like I say, just a lot of luck in publishing. Yeah. 
Um, well, you've ridden that luck for a, some time now, so maybe there's a lot of skill in there as well. Well, I, I think the thing about that, though, is um, with the having that cemented readership right from the beginning, that's where I've been, that's where I have been lucky. You know, the, the authors that have come along afterwards, the early girls like, you know, Fiona Palmer and Alexander, uh, um, Nicole Alexander, you know, they're the same. They've got cemented readerships because we weren't having to share our, uh, our readership with, you know, a huge amount of other authors. Yep. And now there's, um, some time ago, uh, I counted 37 authors that were writing in this genre and people have only got so much time and inclination and money um, to go around and buy books, borrow them from the library, do whatever they're doing. And it seems, especially through this coronavirus time and the lockdowns, it seems that people have stuck with the authors that they know and that they really like. Again, it's a Mm. lot of luck. Um, So, you know, not having, having a cemented readership right from the word go really stood me in very good stead. Now, tell me, where do these characters and these stories come from? I mean, I'm sure you're very careful not to um, <laughs> have them too closely related to or, or reflective of, of, of people who are in your yeah. proximity. But yeah. even on a subconscious level, the things that they do and say and your experiences, they must filter through and yeah. and, and weave their way into your stories in, in some way. Yeah. How, do, how do you manage all of that? Yeah, it's funny. When people say to me, oh, I think, so, that, say, the stock agent is, is – is, um, I, I had a beautiful friend called Peter Gale who was a stock agent who was um, killed um, two years ago in a motorbike accident. And they'll say to me, oh, we could see we could see Wendy in your, in your yeah. stock agent characters. Well, all I know there is that I've done – a really good job because that character or any other character is, isn't based on anybody that I know. I just know that I've done a good job at creating a character that someone believes is real. Um, in saying that, uh, I had did have an incident once where in one of the earlier books where I did base a character on somebody um, in a community that I knew and we were standing in the cattle yards and we're protesting cows and the vet said to me, with his probe up the cow's butt because we were <laughs> protesting. He said, so this character um, reminds me of so-and-so and I just froze and I went, oh, better not do that ever. <laughs> You've overstepped the Yeah, up. yeah, I better yeah. not do, do that ever again. So very, very careful. But in again, in saying that as well, I've got three characters in my books that are based on people, but I'm very open about it. So Kim, who in the modern day book, so like Deception Creek, um, she's married to Dave, who's my detective. And Kim yeah. is based on my friend, Heather James, who is um, the Esperance's local funeral director. Right. <laughs> and she's got this crazy out there personality, which suits Kim perfectly. Um, back <laughs> Back in Crimson Dawn, I um, I created a character called Catherine, and that goes to my my friend Catherine Marriott, who was um, she was the Rural Women of the War, uh, she won the Rural Women's Award. Um, not sure what year it was, but quite some time ago now. But she is just this mover and shaker in the agricultural industry. And Dave, my detective, Dave. Well, he's probably a um, a merge of you know five or six people that I know. Um, not all, not all guys, mind you. Um, you see some tenacity and, and characteristics in girls that you can put into guys. Mm. Um, so yeah, just a um, a merge of a, a heap of different people. And I've created Dave to the inverted commas perfect man that I would like <laughs> to marry at some point. I seem to be having to beat my readers off because they like him too. <laughs> well, look, if he exists in your imagination, you're still sort of, you know, bringing him to life in some way, aren't you? Uh, yeah, well, I'm, <laughs> he may not physically be in the room, but... I'm still hoping to meet someone very much like him. <laughs> well, look, just put it out on the, you know, on your, 
<laughs> online dating app or whatever you might use, Fleur, you can just say, you know, Seeking Dave. <laughs> Refer to my book. That sounds like a movie <laughs> title. Maybe I can use that for one of my next books. <laughs> Have you ever had to, someone come to you, though, who's been just completely wildly off the mark and just went, I can't believe you've written about me or this or that oh, uh, in yeah. your book when, you've, when you genuinely haven't? Yeah, actually, family, yeah. So my brother, who doesn't read at all and um, had decided he was going to read, what book was it? I think it was Silver Clouds. And... Uh, no, it wasn't. It was Emerald Springs. And there is a, a brother in there. That there's, so there's um, brother and sister. And they're at each other all the time. They have these arguments. And anyway, Nicholas and I weren't getting along particularly well at that point. And I killed this brother in the book. And he thought it was him. And he came to me and he said to me, and I had no idea. It never crossed my mind. But the other, th- the the um, the wife was a physio, who Nicholas's wife was a physio. And there were three kids, um, two girls and a brother, which is my family as well. And I had done that completely subconsciously. Yep. I had not realised that that is what I had done. And Nicholas had his nose out of joint for quite some time. And in the end, I said to him, Nicholas, well, if that's what you really believe, if the cap fits, wear it. But it wasn't done intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. You can't be too careful, right? No. Christmas dinner was a little interesting that year. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, I mean, the community in Esperance, it's not a not a big one, but I imagine you, you each, you know, you kind of know each other's business to some extent. To some extent. It's probably bigger than what you think it is. Yeah. Um, and certainly the community down there is um, all-encompassing and um, very supportive. So, you know, you do, and often you get to know people's names rather than who they are actually are. You know, mm. you'll see their names crop up in the paper or on Facebook or something. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but I still am very careful. I, yeah, just... You, you'd have to be. Yeah. It's a dangerous game you're it, in. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Someone told me that... Uh, what, what did they tell me? That um, writers were snipers with words. That's very good. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. Um, coronavirus mm. for you. What? Because, I mean, I, I can imagine putting out as many books as you do a, a couple of year pretty much is your, your norm, isn't it? Yeah. Um, have you been able to write more uh, <laughs> since you've had to stand still um, in, over the last, you know, year and a half to two years? No. Have you been able to write more or less? Or has it changed your life as an author? I haven't written any more. I did um, sign contracts um, back when um, back in June to write five books in um, in two years. So five that, books in two so years? So that will throw another one in there. Wow. I, yeah. Um, but no, it, what it's done is, is made me stay at home and, you know, obviously not being able to travel. Uh, and, um, in doing that, you know, I've learned to love being at home and, um, you know, just spend more time with the kids and the mm. dogs and, and all that sort of stuff. But the snakes, snakes yep. <laughs> lots of snakes. Uh, but the, the great thing about coronavirus is actually, it's actually made people read, uh, and book sales across the board have been... Um, really high, which has been... That's great. Yeah, it's been a wonderful experience. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, we still do online events and those sorts of things. I think there's a real... Um, uh, no, not boredom, but uh, but t- everyone's tired of on- yeah. online events. So, you know, we're just trying to do different things to interact with readers. And, you know, I, uh, especially when Victoria first got locked down, I, um, I 
you know, just put up, you know, the first 10 people to get in contact with me, I'll send you a free book because you know, it's pretty shocking. You know, we're so lucky here and I would have hated to have been stuck over there the way that they have been. Oh, yeah. They've had a very different uh, last mm. year or so, haven't they, particularly yeah. uh, Victoria and New South Wales. Um, having said all that, are you looking forward to getting back out on the, the book tour circuit again? Yeah. I, I mean, th- when you go to... Rural Victoria, Queensland, New South Wales, um, do people kind of latch onto your stories and your general themes in the same way that they do around Esperance? Yeah, I'm incredibly lucky. People just seem to love those books. And Mm. whatever it is, whether they can see themselves in there or what, I I am not sure. But uh, so many people contact me and tell me, you know, how it's got them through hard times or it gives them hope or something. And, And, you know, as an entertainer, that's what I. That is. Uh, that's what I want to hear. The best thing I can hear is when someone says to me, "You've got me back into reading again." Yeah. And I've had quite a few of those emails too. You know. Yeah. So that's. Um. I can't wait to get back out and talk to people and meet them again. And, and you know, there's so many people to meet, so many stories exactly. to tell. Exactly. And, and maybe even a Dave. Maybe even a Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> Let's go to another break. This is inspiring stories. Flo McDonald is our special guest. Back with more after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is celebrated author Fleur McDonald. Uh, Fleur, when you're not raising the kids, running the farm, uh, and writing books uh, at a rapid rate. Uh, you've also invested a lot of uh, your own time and energy uh, into helping uh, victims of domestic violence. You started a, a service called Breaking the Silence uh, some years ago. Um, can I ask why that became such a, a passion for you? A couple of reasons. Um, I, getting around as a with my author hat on and talking to people, there was it was really clear that domestic violence was a lot more rampant in rural areas as it is in in the city than what um, than what I understood, and you know I certainly had had um, experiences looking for services um, over time, and I just thought it would be really great to have all those services uh, amalgamated into one area, which is what the website does. Is it, it finds all the services of um, for domestic violence in towns across WA. Um, so if you're looking for everyday necessities, whatever is under that can support and help with everyday necessities is listed under that tab. You know, whether you need counselling, that's there as well. And then I sort of got to thinking it would be great to have a counselling service there because we have so many different um, different things that in the country, you know, first off we've got guns, you know, that at people's fingertips because they're yep. part of our toolbox. You know, we as farmers we need guns. You know, we've got the policeman that plays footy with the guy from Rotary, with the farmer, with, um, with the nurse, with, you know, we are all interlinked. Yep. And I just – so I wanted to bring counsellors in and then I realised, well – There'll be councillors that don't want to live in Esperance and there'll be councillors that don't want to live at Marble Bar. So how do we combat that? And that was when I came up with the idea of the telephone counselling services. So um, I took all of that to the Rural Women's Award in 2017. And I didn't win. I came runner-up. But um, I thought then it was too important not to do. So I got Esperance and Albany up off the ground just on the websites uh, to begin with in 2017. It, it, you must have heard some heartbreaking stories and, and met some people who were doing it incredibly tough. 
Yeah, um, yeah, I have, and I've been privileged that people have told the, told me those stories, and and I think. Um, if you're in a situation where you're able to help, I think you always should. You know, yep. that's one of those things that I was brought up with with my parents, you know, if you're, if you're able to help someone. And and that involves also telling people stories as well because if you don't make people aware. So the, the, name behind, the, name, the reason behind the name of Breaking the Silence was that domestic violence isn't just physical. You know, all the TV ads have a woman cowering in the corner with a man standing over the top of her and that is just not... That is, that is a small part of domestic violence. You know, that you've got... You've got the gaslighting. You've got the mind games. Um, you know the the um, the financial control. There's so many other parts to this domestic yeah. violence thing that is so um, difficult to help with. So yeah. unless you unless you tell your stories, you can't help other people. Yeah, um, you obviously formed a view. You know when you wanted to start this that it was a real problem, particularly mm. in. In rural parts of WA, was it when as you sort of got more deeply involved, was it as bad, even worse probably, than what you first suspected? It's probably worse, I reckon, because people don't talk about it. And and what are the key sort of differences in the in the challenges faced in the country compared to the city, a- apart from access to services? But I suppose pressures that build um, and maybe contribute to those yeah. well, nasty isol- situations. Isolation is is the the obvious one because you're isolated being on a farm anyway. Yep. But when but when the perpetrator, whether it's a man or a woman, because let's not forget here, women are perpetrators as well. When they hold the car keys or they hold the credit card, you know, those types of things, um, you you don't have that ability to remove yourself from a situation, uh, to just even go to town to do shopping or to see a friend or something like that. Um, you know, some of those, some of the more isolated areas have really dodgy mobile range. So, you know, you don't necessarily have a phone to be able to talk to people with. And that sounds really primitive, but it's, it is actual reality in some parts of this state. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so there's some of them. The, the isolation is geographical as well as you know shifting people away from their families. Yeah. At the same time as as hearing some of those terrible stories, you must have taken enormous comfort from being able to help some of these women as well and yep. men. Yep. I think um, yeah, like I said, if you if you're able to help, you should. And I. When was, I knew that when I first started it, I didn't have enough money to take it to where I wanted to get it to. So I came across a guy called Peter Fitzpatrick who acted as my mentor for a little while and together we went to Canberra and lobbied the federal government for a grant, which we got. So now, um, or when, when we got that money, that money was put towards putting 16 pilot towns on DV Assist website and it um, instigated having the two councillors start um, on limited hours at that time. And now they've, you know, they've gone on, they've got extra funding to have the councillors there seven days a week and there's more towns on the website. So, you know, my aim was to help one person not go through what I've heard people go through and I think we've achieved that. Yeah, sounds like you have. And then some. Mm. Um, back to the writing. Mm. How many more stories have you got in you? Do they just keep pouring out of you? <laughs> uh, do you have to. I mean, do you have to really work for them yeah, and search for them? It's not. Or, or do, do they just like it's just a tap you can't turn off? It doesn't get easier, but what it does do is uh, I listen to the radio a lot, and I find that I, I'll hear something that uh, sparks a story. The other day there was a story about a, a, a yacht that came into uh, up north somewhere that didn't have anybody on it. Well. 
There's got to be a story there, doesn't mm. there? That, yeah. That's how it happens. Yeah, you just hear little snippets of things here yep. and there and and then the imagination takes over. You ask what if. That's yeah. that's the absolute crucial thing. <laughs> ask what if. Yeah, okay. Um, so your latest book, Deception Creek, give us the, the, the quick 30-second pitch. Why would someone – I mean, of all the books on the shelves, why would someone pick this one up? Because Joel – has been let out of jail. He has a long history with the town of Barker and not everybody likes Joel. Right. And um, then Dave has to come in. <laughs> Dave has to... Every story needs a hero. That's right. He has to come in and sort out that whole... And country towns are notorious for being horrifically petty and um, not that nice. And that is what that book is about. There is some really... There's some really deep, dark horrible secrets in that book, but yep. uh, every country town has None them. of them based on people that you know. Or, or incidences <laughs> <laughs> that have been around. Very good. Well, look, all the best with the, the latest publication and all of the other ideas that will no doubt uh, work their way into your novels in the future. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story with us. We appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Uh, you've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us next time as we unearth another inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.